Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. My name's Jog Erling. I'm Kim McKenzie. And today on Passing Shot Meets, we're in conversation with Andy Bettles, current coach of Elena Svitolina. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Shot Meets, where we are joined by Andy Bettles, coach of world number five, Alina Svitolina. Hi, Hayden. Thanks for having me on. Andy, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, I've got to confess, uh, this is the first ever Passing Shot Meets we've done with a top coach like yourself. So we're, of course, really looking forward to it, looking forward to learning a bit more about you, tour life on the WTA Tour and Team Svitolina as well. Uh, but of course, before we get into all of that, how has lockdown life been treating you? Have you been able to get back out onto a tennis court? Well, you know, I've been out, um, but I've been really unlucky. I haven't been able to play tennis yet. Um because I'm not a member of a club, so I can't get on the courts there and they're not allowing guests or whatever. And every single park court around where I live um, in South West London is so fully booked at the moment. I haven't had to play. So everyone else is getting out there, but um, I'm still yet to... Uh, Have you not got like a wall next to, to where you live that you can just kind of play against play against the wall in a, in a, in a backdrop or something? Well, I could do that. I'm, I'm <laughs> a proper court for a little little while longer. I suppose in normal times, it would be great to see so many people like out on the local courts. But, um, you know, we normally see that like post Wimbledon, don't we, with like the boom. But um, yeah, I guess uh, it's because of the current situation. But I think um, also from tomorrow, the rules are relaxing even more. So I guess there'll be even more people kind of wanting to get out and about. But um, let's let's kind of begin Andy you're actually the first coach we've had on on the show so welcome and thank you very much for taking the time to come on um of course we know you as Alina Svitolina's coach um I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be aware of that as well but let's kind of go back to the beginning uh, a bit and if you could just tell us a bit about how you how you got into tennis when when did you start playing it yourself um yeah I was I was really young when I started I was probably like going to say three or four when I first started picking up a racket my mum was always a big tennis fan and we live right next um to a little club uh, down in Somerset actually um and I had an older brother a couple years older than me who started playing tennis and might have done some groups whatever and I just kind of wanted to join followed on um so I started playing from a really young age and then um kept at it, it turned out to be pretty good and I ended up going to read school to kind of focus on the tennis from 11 to 16 um then moved over to the national center to then um and went to university uh, after that in america so i've had quite a quite a long tennis journey 
Oh, wow. Where were you based in America? Um, it was a small uh, city called Boise. So I was at Boise State University, um, okay. a small one, a niche little uh, yeah, university. But I had a, yeah, I had a great time there. And then I, I played um, professionally for a little bit after that. Oh, that's always one of the things I'm kind of most jealous about when you, you know, all the when you get the players going off to do um, all the scholarships and the tennis in, in America, I'm always quite jealous of that, not to mention everything else. But um, so at what point did you kind of move over into like coaching? When did you kind of make that decision? And how was, was it kind of a natural decision to make? Or was it quite a sort of fraught over choice? Well, I kind of finished, uh, yeah, I finished university when I was like 21, always wanted to give it a go on the pro tour, um, figured out fairly quickly that, a, I wasn't quite good enough and B, I definitely didn't have the money to uh, keep traveling around and doing it. So I kind of I guess I never, it was never like a big thing. I was thinking, oh, I really want to go into coaching, whatever. Um, I kind of luckily have fell into a job of um, sparring partner uh, with Anna Ivanovic kind of straight after I finished playing. Nigel Sears was her coach at the time um, and he asked me to be her sparring partner. So of course, I'm yeah, great. I'll do that. Um, and then from there, when I was kind of inside that world, spending a lot of time with Nigel, learning from him, I kind of uh, found my appetite for coaching, and uh, yeah, felt like it was something that I wanted to do moving forward. And was that quite a natural sort of transition from like hitting partner to coaching? Did you kind of you know develop more responsibilities as you kind of found your you know found your feet on the on the tour? Yeah, I guess I kind of moved into it fairly kind of uh, slowly because I was with Nigel to start with Anna for like a year, you know, and at the beginning, I didn't really speak much and I was just hitting, you know, kind of didn't want to interfere, get involved. And then kind of the longer we were together, he'd do a few weeks where, no, so there'll be a few weeks where he wasn't there, I'd be on my own. And uh, kind of naturally you'd start, you know, giving a few tips here or there, and then that kind of just progressed. And when I started working with Alina, same thing. I was kind of sparring partner, then moved to assistant coach. It was kind of, yeah, gradual progression. So I was never like, felt like I was thrown in the deep end. But the the, the big difference is being the sparring partner, there's no pressure to say anything or results as much where with the coaching, it definitely you definitely feel that a bit more. Absolutely. I think I can sort of sympathize with that, with that um, kind of, you know, needing that sort of initial period where you're kind of just getting used to the the whole setup. But I mean, now you've been working with Alina um, for a while, would you be sort of able to kind of describe the kind of coaching style you have with her? Are you able to put a label on it? You know, what's the kind of key points to, to that relationship that you have? Yeah, it's an interesting one because... Obviously, she's such a good player and she was a great player when I started working, started coaching with her. So it's difficult to say, and this is my first coaching job, whether it's my philosophy with her or it's my philosophy in general. But I think kind of I, I like to think I bring a great work ethic, you know, bring a real intensity and drive to every practice. And I like to, you know, mix that without being too militant. So I'll push her, like to work her really hard, but then kind of mixing in understanding when to push, when to kind of, you know, take a step back, understand, you know, how difficult it is. And I think I kind of have that advantage of being someone who's young, same sort of age, someone who's kind of understands the difficulty of tennis and all the problems you get with it because I found them, you know, a few years ago when I was playing. 
Uh, so kind of finding that balance between setting the standard, really hard working, and then, you know, at the right times, pushing or easing back or whatever like that. It's an interesting one because, you know, you're I, I guess you're kind of at an age where there are players who are of your age as well. And there might not necessarily be, you know, many coaches of, of your age. So kind of what is that? What is that dynamic like in terms of, you know, you're almost kind of on a, a level playing field? Yeah, it's it's good. And I think it's obviously worked. I think because I'm not older and clearly more experienced than lots of other coaches, I don't bring that natural authority where, you know, maybe you would if you're 40 and done it for or 50 and done it for 20 years or something like that. So I think I have to work extra hard to make sure I'm trying to be the best I can at everything that's, you know, scouting players. I'm going, trying to go above and beyond um, there and kind of every aspect. I think it makes me work harder because I don't bring that natural um, authority that maybe an older coach does. So I think it has it, you know, advances, it pushes me because I'm always aware of that. And then I'd say the advantages come from being younger, being able to relate to the player um, a bit more because you're the same age, you know, so you can, you know, hang out with them off court a bit easier maybe. And that kind of progresses nicely as well. And in terms of kind of your setup with Team Svitolina, is it, you know, you're the you're the coach, is it kind of what other sort of, uh, you know, roles that kind of are, are fed into the team to kind of support, you know, a top player like Svitolina? Yeah, it's kind of an ever-moving cast of um, people. There's always the agent there. So she, you know, she has that side of it. And then on the performance side, there's me, coach, and then she'll have her physical trainer and a physio. And they would travel most of the time, sometimes not all the time. But, uh, yeah, you, you'll have them. And it, it's good because it gives you that extra, you, you know, it's not always one-on-one, uh, like coach and player, and there's no separation. So I, I prefer kind of working in when you have your specific role and I'll do the test and then you pass it on to the next person. Otherwise, it's quite an intense environment anyway. So if there's if it's just one-on-one all the time, I think it becomes it's full on so you've been in her setup uh you know in your various roles for a couple of years now and so if you could like just delving into her game a bit more what do you think have been the biggest changes that that you've as you know as a team worked on with with her over the last few years yes i started with her in december 2016 so fair kind of while now um and she was i'd say always an amazing competitor um so you know that brought that carried that on has always moved great and made loads of balls i'd like to think we kind of added to the game um a bit more ability to hurt her opponents so kind of take control of the match be aggressive um i think the forehand in the last few years has really come on she can you know dominate the middle of the court and finish points way easier um so more matches are kind of under her control, um, where in the past, sometimes it might be if the other person's playing amazing, it's not her day where now we're always trying to, you know, make it, um, it, playing the matches on her terms. So I think, yeah, she's really come on with that. I think, you know, naturally she's more experienced. She's a few years older. She's used to being um, top 10 in the world now. So you kind of can't underestimate that. But I think the big thing is having that ability to finish points, um, and yeah, be comfortable in the in the front of the court. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I think Svitolina, certainly, you know, last season, I think, you know, she's known as a player that has kind of definitely got great consistency. And I think she always kind of carries a threat kind of wherever, you know, whatever sort of tennis court kind of she steps on. Um, You know, looking kind of back on some of the, you know, the tournaments that she's played in, some of the achievements that she's made, do any of them kind of stand out to you? Do you have any sort of moments you look back on and think about that was a real, a real kind of career highlight? Yeah, I mean, it's been lucky because she, she's done a kind of a lot of winning and there's, there's been so many great moments. I think the, the one that really stands out in 2018 when she won the tour finals in Singapore, um, that was, yeah, that was an incredible achievement. She beat, you know, five matches in a row. They're obviously all top eight players in the world. Um, so that, that was incredible. Um, before that, I mean, she's won Rome two years in a row, Dubai two years in a row. That was amazing. And then last year, kind of making that breakthrough in a Grand Slam um, to the semifinals. So she made semifinals of Wimbledon and US back-to-back, um, which was kind of a nice um, breakthrough for her um, in the Grand Slam tournaments. Yeah, and um, I mean, that was really fantastic to see her kind of making that next step. And I assume going forwards into... Well, whenever tennis kind of starts up again, is that going to be your primary goal, like getting her to a Grand Slam final? Or are you looking also at, you know, potentially number one ranking? Like what's your main goals kind of going forward? Yeah, so, I mean, she's she's basically won everything else apart from a Grand Slam now. So naturally that is the next thing. Um, you don't want to put too much pressure on and say that's the be-all and end-all because I don't think that's the way to go about it. I think it's you know, a product of buying into that process and that the end result is a Grand Slam rather than, you know, just saying, this is it, you've got to do it. Um, so, of course, trying to make a final, then go on to win a Grand Slam is our goals as a team and her big personal goal. Um, and then number one, I wouldn't say it's something we talk about that much. I think the number one is kind of a byproduct of doing well in the Grand Slams and, because um, that's the only way you can get there, basically. So I think, yeah, it's not something so much. I think kind of final uh, winning a Grand Slam is is the next big goal. And just going back to those two semifinals last year, um, you know, Svitolina, she, she was you know, looking at the score lines. It looked quite one sided from the score lines, but I don't, I don't think that was necessarily the case. But coming, if you could focus on just those matches, like what was. Yeah said to her you know post-match what was kind of from the analysis that you did like the key things that you would like to see her kind of put into her game just to kind of get her to that next stage like the next time she finds herself in that stage of a grand slam yeah I think obviously we've had a lot of thinking time especially in (laughs) these last and I probably thought about what I'd say do say differently to her and whether we you know maybe did something wrong or something to learn I wouldn't say there'd be there's any big regrets from that I think Wimbledon semi-final versus Halep, and that's she's got a fairly good head-to-head against her. Um, Halep, as we all saw in the semis and final, was playing incredible tennis um, and blew away Alina and Serena in in the final. Um, and it's funny because their matchup is kind of they they mirror each other a little bit. They're they're very very good at the same things. And it's happened before in the past with Alina beating Simona easily, where it's kind of like if one of them gets on top early, 
it kind of it's it's almost difficult for the other person to come back and you know those those really really long games and points at the beginning are always so pivotal when they play each other and whoever can just kind of nudge themselves in front seems to be the one who comes out uh the the winner so that's kind of that that is, <laughs> It is it's something I thought about a lot. I wouldn't say we'd do anything too different tactically, um, apart from maybe trying to, like I spoke about before, take control a little bit, use the lines a little bit more. But I wouldn't say Alina played bad. It was a, it was actually a really high level match, especially mm. those first few games, which I think were like took Very about half. Yeah, long, weren't they? I remember watching it, and it was yeah, it was almost I don't know twenty five minutes just for a couple of games, and then yeah. after that it was yeah different. But um, and the US Open, I think, was it against Serena that? Uh, yeah, got, yeah. So yeah, again, and it's kind of similar where the beginning was so important as well. Um, Alina was playing great throughout that tournament. She'd be in Venus, um, Yastremska, Madison Keys, Joe Conta. So she was having she was having a great run. Um, so she was really confident going into that match. And the beginning, again, was very important because um, Serena was, I think, you know, she wasn't con- completely loose at the beginning. She obviously aware how good a player Elena is. Um, so she, you know, she wasn't totally, she wasn't moving amazing. And there was a few games at the beginning where, again, I feel like if Elena had just managed to get the break or whatever, then she would have relaxed into it. But it happened that Serena did and, she relaxed, she got loose, and when Serena's kind of in full flow in a, a night match at US Open, it's pretty tough to stop. <laughs> so they're, they're both very good players who she's lost to, and they both performed amazing on those days. So it's not something I think she should look back or we look back on a team and set being like, oh, that's such a missed opportunity there. Obviously, there's things we'd like to do different, and if you get that chance again, you know she's 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 ready to take it. Yeah, I was I was kind of looking back at uh, her record at Grand Slams, and you know she lost to you know Hal Epper Wimbledon, Serena Williams at the US Open, Muguruza at the Australian Open. It's, mm. it's she seems really unlucky that she's you know playing players who are either winning the whole tournament or, or getting to the final. So it feels like you know it's not it's not far away, and it sounds like what you're kind of you feel like what you need to do is she needs to make sure that she gets off on the right foot really kind of assert that pressure early on in the matches yeah and like i said i don't believe in you know it's really unlucky or whatever because you're going to have to beat those players to win a grand slam there's no you know hiding that um so i wouldn't say it's unlucky and i think everyone knows lena has the level to win a grand slam she's won you know the tour final she's beaten all these players numerous times so i think it's just about you know staying patient with it understanding that you know, it may take her, it's taken her a bit longer than she wanted, but if she keeps on the right track and focuses on, you know, the process rather than just how she's, she's got to win a Grand Sam, I think, I think it will come. She's not far off. Yes. And I, you know, I, I, I certainly agree. And then in terms of kind of other, you know, other events that are on the horizon, I'm just thinking you know, out loud in terms of kind of the Olympics, is that a, you know, is that a goal on, on her mind as well? Do you feel like there's any sort of, pressure being you know from Ukraine you know Ukraine's obviously not you know that famous in terms of kind of the tennis world do you feel like she carries sort sort of the the weight of the the nation on her shoulders or 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 not really for her winning the Olympics would be a massive massive achievement and she wants to do that for Ukraine and 
I think it would be it would be incredible. And she's got that. She had her eye set on it this year. Obviously, it's going to be next year now. So it's going mm-hmm. to be a big, you know, target for us. Um, it's difficult for me to speak about the, you know, how it would influence Ukraine and the Ukrainian whatever because, I mm-hmm. you know, I can't say so much. But, yeah, it looks like they don't have so many amazing athletes. And Lena's probably one of their biggest with um, a couple of boxers. So, yeah, there, there's probably that that pressure. But she's she's a top athlete and she has a chance to – to win a medal so i think she's she's she'll be you know right up for that next summer i know i'm i'm so looking forward to the olympics and that's one of the things i'm saddest about you know from from this from this year i'd sort of already designated my two weeks off in the summer to to watch it but um we can't talk about svetlina without mentioning a bit of of jem's life uh and, and gail Wolfie's. obviously she's in a relationship with with gail and um, how does that work on the tour like does he get involved at all in in any coaching sessions like does he come and hit with Alina quite a lot um yeah he they practice together a lot actually um he's really good for, I mean obviously that's an amazing practice partner yeah. to have um that's about as good as it gets isn't it um and yeah he's he's been really good with her um I don't think he gets involved too much where you know he doesn't feel it's necessary or whatever but his just general attitude to tennis is it's probably slightly different to hers where he's way more relaxed and she's probably a bit more focused and serious so they kind of balance each other you know really well and you can kind of see they both finished top 10 in the world last year so it's um it's obviously something's working there um and he's uh, he's a really fun guy to have around and you know we'll they'll practice together and know he'll um will do some little games at the end and i think he kind of just relaxes um alina and everyone around uh so he's been he's been great to have around and it's never boring that's for sure <laughs> yeah because he he he's probably had a re- one of his best seasons this year i think he he was probably the closest that got to uh to beating novak Djokovic. but um you know i was i was going to ask actually you know i think what i've seen as a fan i guess over the last you know year or so i've seen more you know, like ATP players kind of hit with WTA players and it almost kind of that having that mixed element um, in kind of coaching sessions and bringing different sort of, I don't know, different approach, a different approach to coaching. Do you have any sort of views on kind of bringing, you know, men's players to hit with women's players? Do you think that that works? Do you think that's sort of an evolution that we're kind of, you know, seeing now more on the, the WTA tour? Yeah, I think, I think that's something that Alina and Gail started maybe. I don't know if they can totally take claim for it but it seems like it kind of died after that um yeah i think I mean, the, the women hit incredibly well up and down so they're giving the guys you know a decent practice session um in itself and i think maybe the guys can kind of enjoy it they're practicing someone different they kind of it's a bit more relaxed for them um they can have a bit of fun uh you know maybe without a peer or something so it seems to um, something that's quite popular and I, I think the fans really enjoy watching that I think sometimes the um, the practice courts when a ATP and a WTA player are practicing with each other are more full than the than the match courts <laughs> yeah it certainly makes you know it's, it's nice for fans I guess watching the practices you know to to kind of see more top names on on the practice courts perhaps I think there is a kind of appetite in tennis to see something with the men and the women playing together I think you know, when Andy and Serena were playing mixed at Wimbledon last year, there was obviously a, everyone was so into that. And in the past with Hotman Park, which is obviously no longer there, it seemed like a great event. And 
one of the only ones where you've got the, the top men and women playing together. So I think there there's a space for that in in the future somewhere. And I think it is kind of they're stronger as a unified kind of thing rather than, you know, working on their own pathways and then never kind of uniting the, the men and the women together. Do you think uh, Alina and Gail might, you know, enter some slam mixed doubles in the future then? <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> I, I, it's different when you're in a relationship, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe best maybe, to go there. <laughs> it'll be nice to watch. It'll be, it's, it's for them to make that decision. <laughs> So let's go back to a few months ago when all of the restrictions were announced and events were starting to be cancelled. You know, what was the feeling like within the Svitolina camp? Because I gather she'd just won the Monterey title and was maybe picking up, you know, a bit more form going into the rest of the season. So what was your kind of initial reaction to to the kind of cancellation of of Indian Wells and and subsequent events? Yeah, it was really strange because... We kind of like, it felt like, you know, the COVID and whatever, it was kind of spreading and it seemed at some point inevitable that stuff was going to start, it was going to start affecting the whole world. But I didn't realise how quick it was going to come. I remember always in my head, I was thinking, you know, maybe Indian, we'll do Indian Wells, Miami, and then after that is going to be, you know, something, but it won't be before then. So like we said, um, we were in uh, Monterey, Mexico, and she was playing the final, won the final. I kind of like looked at my phone. The first thing I see was Indian Wells cancelled. So I literally was just took the phone out after the match, after she won the tournament. And, um, and then I told her kind of as she, as she was lifting the trophy up. Um, so it was really surprising because it was, it did feel out of the blue. Like there was no, like a, there, it's, it felt like it was a few weeks away. There was no kind of inkling in the tennis world that it was going to happen that quickly. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of like, well, what do we do now? Um, and I flew back to London and she flew to Indian Wells. She had to do like a, a photo shoot for the WTA or something like some contractual things. Um, and it was still, Miami wasn't cancelled. So she didn't want to leave back to Europe and then not be able to come back or whatever. So it was all, it, it was, yeah a lot of uncertainty and then it kind of became clear that we were going to be in this for a bit longer than everyone expected. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a shame because she, she didn't have the greatest results to start um, the year and felt like we really turned a corner, um, found kind of a bit of form winning Monterey and really looking forward to kicking on um, through Indian Wells, Miami and clay season. But no, it's not meant to be and there's obviously bigger issues going on at the moment than Alina's form. I'm just thinking in terms of, do you see hard courts as like Svitolina's bread and butter? What sort of court surface do you think is the go-to if, you, if you're if you thinking, you know, maybe about Grand Slams, like what are, what is the court surface you think is most likely to happen on? I think it could happen on any of them really. I don't think there's a clear, like, you know, the surface where she's clearly better at. Outdoor hard, she's very good on. Um, so fits for Aussie and US. Clay, I think, would be her most natural surface, or the surface that she thinks she's best on, maybe. Um, she's won Rome twice and was actually didn't play the clay court season last year, really, because of a knee injury. Um, she was struggling. So, yeah, she, she, she feels like she's got kind of, you know, st- stuff left to prove at Roland Garros. And then 
her grass would traditionally be her, let's call it worst um, surface, but she has a lot of tools to be very good on grass. Um, like we saw her making semifinals last year. So it's, it's difficult to say, and it might be the one that she least expects that she kind of finally makes that um, you know, final jump, gets over that final hurdle. And I don't know where Alina's been during, you know, the lockdown, but has she been able to kind of get out onto a court much? And and if she has, I mean, have you been communicating much with her? Is there any way you can coach um, kind of virtually or give her any pointers that way? Yeah, so she's been able to kind of start hitting like we can in the UK now, like, you know, get up, um, hit for a few hours, whatever. Um, She's abroad at the moment, but um, she's playing a few hours a week, building it back up slowly, um, doing a lot of fitness work. So she's in good physical shape. And hopefully I'm going to be able to go out there. Um, she's in Switzerland at the moment. So hopefully I'm going to be able to get out there um, in a couple of weeks and we can start training properly. There hasn't been, I haven't been doing like a Zoom coaching session or whatever. Right. <laughs> I mean, she's obviously such a good player and she's just, at the moment, it's just about, getting physically fit and feeling the ball and getting her eye back in. So it's kind of just basic stuff. And then hopefully in a couple of weeks, we can kind of kick on and start to get those proper proper training blocks back in. Do you see the tour opening up again before, I guess, the season comes to a close? I know we, we spoke before this recording and, you know, your initial thoughts were you just thought the, the season was going to be was going to be cancelled. Did you do you think now kind of there's more sort of optimism in terms of getting this, the season up, uh, up and running again? Yeah, I think a few weeks ago, I was probably kind of resigned to the fact that, you know, this tennis was done for 2020 or whatever, and we'd just have to, you know, maybe there'll be some exhibitions or whatever. But, you know, the last week or so, it seems to be things moving forward, um, rightly or wrongly. But, yeah, sports events seem to be able to happen now. See see the Bundesliga is going on in Germany and Premier League's going to start mm. again. So it seems like it's positive for tennis and if they can get creative and make sure everyone's been tested and, you know, I guess in these controlled environments, they are making sure people aren't moving around too much. Um, then it, you know, it seems like it can be possible, I guess, without fans though, um, which is a big shame. Do you, um, I mean, with lockdown, you know, there have been some perhaps benefits for, for many people. And, you know, as someone who I guess is traveling around the world constantly, normally, has it actually been a nice break for you? Or are you kind of really looking forward to getting back out there and, and I guess, I don't know, getting back on the road again? Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's been nice in terms of I've been able to, you know, be at home and actually spend some time in the place to pay for. So that's been, <laughs> that's been nice, but it's time it's time now I want to get back uh, you know working back to the tennis um, back out there and trying to return to some sort of normality um, whatever that looks like do you think you know when you do get back onto a tennis court when you do get back onto the the tour do you feel like when you step onto that court do you think it's going to feel different to you know what it was in terms of coaching for example you know if they're playing in in without crowds you know do you think that's going to give sort of new challenges that you're going to have to think about potentially you know overcoming because you know tennis players haven't been in these situations before yeah I think undoubtedly I think it's it's possible to ignore it's going to be diff, diff, very different um, and the most obvious thing you'd say would be keeping the players motivation up just because if you're playing in an empty stadium it's probably 
you know, you haven't got that crowd pushing you. You haven't got, you know, entertaining someone in front of you. Um, you haven't got those people driving you on. So I think maybe, you know, that's a big thing, keeping the, keeping the player, you know, their intensity high, keeping them motivated, which isn't something I've had to do with Alina before. Um, and hopefully I won't, but, you know, it seems like that's the most obvious thing. And I guess it's just, it's just going to look very different in terms of when you can arrive for your match. You might have to leave straight away. And I think players and coaches are going to have to accept there's going to be changes and we're, we're just going to have to find a way to, you know, make make it possible. And it's not going to be perfect, but it's better it's better than nothing. Yeah, I suppose it's the new normal, as, as the phrase goes. We'll have to, you know... Get, get into it. And I'm sure after a few months of whatever the new normal is, you know, it will be kind of like, I think tennis players generally are quite adaptable, aren't they? So you have, I guess you have to be with, with life on the tour. And I mean, as a, from a personal perspective, are there any events that you particularly enjoy going to the most? Any favorite events or tournaments? Any favorite slams that you're kind of going to really miss not going to this year? Yeah. Um, I do love this clay court swing kind of in Europe. Um, you know, doing Madrid, Rome, Paris. So that would have been in the last month or so. That's they're all great cities and so much history and around the events. And that's that was kind of a you know knowing that should have been going on was um, was difficult. Uh, and then of course Wimbledon, um, so special to us Brits and just living so close and you know kind of biking around there at the moment, knowing what should should be going on in a few weeks is difficult. But you know, hopefully we can we can return to um, that next year. Um, and then again, Aussie was seemingly we were all kind of at the beginning of the year, like on oh, Australia, all these bushfires, what's going on? They might have to delay a match and thinking it was the thing. And now they look like they're um, kind of came up very lucky <laughs> being able to play their tournament and everything. You know, when it does kind of get started up again, I've got one question, particularly on kind of on-court coaching. And mm. what what is what is that like for you? Do you do you like it? Do you not like it? Because I, I feel like there's a lot of opinions kind of thrown about on on the topic. What's your kind of what's your kind of take on it? I like it in terms of um, you know I'm a coach. I can then influence the match in some ways. You know, it's uh, it's great to have that involvement and you know being able to tell your player something that you're seeing. It, it is good. I'm not sure if it's, you know, really in the, you know, integrity of tennis that that's what makes tennis so special. So I'm still kind of undecided on that. Like the gladiatorial like element of like yeah, one-to-one one in singles. Yeah, the chess match type thing that makes tennis so special. Mm. Um, what is difficult is that it's it's different for different tournaments, you know, so it's not like a, for, for Grand Slams, there's no coaching at all. And then for WTA tournaments, uh, now a new rule you can go on for the on-court coaching and also coach when your players on the same side so it just needs to ha- it's difficult there needs to be that parity I don't think you can have you know one rule for WTA tournaments and then in the big events suddenly you're not allowed to speak to them um, that's that's frustrating and then also I think the men and the women should have the be having the same thing um, I don't think it personally I don't think it helps that much that you know, for for you know the women's that they've been fighting so hard, and the WTA has been integral to that for equal prize money and equality in sport. And then it kind of looks like you're saying, oh, the, but the women need coaching as well, but the men don't. 
I don't think it kind of I don't think it's right, and I don't think it kind of creates the right image of of uh, for the WTA that uh, the men do one thing and the women don't. I'm not sure it's kind of it's in their best interest. Um, I definitely think there's uh, you know people one side of the argument, people on the other side of the argument, and there's still like a, a way to go in terms of yeah bringing in that consistency and bringing in that level kind of playing field between you know between players because you know I guess some players you know can't afford to have like a you know full time coach if yeah, you're kind of going cool. down kind of further down the rankings. Um, just a, another question as well in terms of kind of British players. I know Svitolina's kind of played up against, you know, Katie Balter at the Australian Open, Joe Conter at the US Open last year. What's kind of going through your head as a you know British coach when you kind of come up against British players? Yeah, it's a bit of a strange situation because obviously I know them so well. I grew up playing with them and everything. Um, it probably helps because I, I know their games very well. Um, <laughs> It, yeah, I always kind of watch the British players and look at it from afar and hope they do well. Um, it's, it, it's they're very professional with it. I'm very professional with it. It's, they, they go out and play their matches. There's no kind of you know awkwardness or whatever around the matches, and it's fine. And obviously, I want Alina to win that match, and I hope they do well uh, in all their other matches. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's. I thought it was just interesting because uh, I remember when uh, yeah, Katie Balter was playing against Vitalina in the Australian Open, and I, and I had no idea how she was get she was going to get on. And I remember it being quite a close match in terms of the scoreline, and I was quite impressed with the the level. And I think it was quite good to come up against. I feel like Vitalina is one of those players where you can actually see how good the you know almost kind of their you know the opponent is. Yeah, it was a it was it was a very good match, Katie. So coming back from injury, um, mm. that awful kind of long time off, and she played a great match, and she really was going going after it, taking it to Alina, and it was, uh, yeah, in some moments it was very very close. So it was, yeah, it was good to see Katie giving Alina such a. It was a bit at the time I was a bit stressed out and a little <laughs> hot and stuff, but yeah, she played well, and I think she'll she'll get back to that top hundred, which she did so well to get to before. And just kind of moving on to talking about kind of coaching uh, on like the WTA tour, you know, how, how would you kind of define it? Because, you know, I know like on the, AT, on the ATP tour and particularly with kind of the, you know, the big, big three, big four, like, you know, they've had kind of this era of the super coaches. Do you think that exists on the WTA tour or, or doesn't it? Or do you feel like you need a big name? you know, in, in the setup, do you feel like you need that experience or, you know, what's your kind of take on kind of having big names in, in setups? Yeah, I think there was definitely that it was kind of the in thing to do a few years ago, wasn't it? I think when Andy started with Ivan Lendl, then it seemed like everyone <laughs> having an X grand slam, you know, in their, in their box or whatever. But I think for some people it can be very good, um, you know, having that experience or someone who's been there, maybe, you know, adds a bit of respect and stuff like that and, you know, a fresh voice or whatever. I think it's not a necessity. I don't think it's something that you have to have to be a Grand Slam champion. I think it's whatever works for the player. I think, you know, if you have a player who works really well with a coach and they don't need to add someone in and there's all that then added pressure and a new voice, I think it's kind of every individual is different and there's different circumstances um, to where people are in their career. I think it, one thing I think it is really good having these amazing players still involved in the game and um, wanting to be involved and obviously part in 
their huge knowledge on other players. It's only it's only a good thing. I just don't know if it is for everyone. Yeah, I suppose there's like no one size fits all. Um, and I guess it just depends, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, introducing possibly on-court coaching for that ATP side, is there any other changes that you have... Um, that you would want to implement if if you were, you know, given the power to, is there anything burning in your mind that you want to kind of get out there and, and make reality? I'm not, yeah, I'm not, that's probably the big thing. That's probably something that everyone's talked about a lot. Um, I think it should be the same for the men and the women. So whatever they decide. And then I think like I kind of mentioned before, I think there's a space to have some sort of event, you know, team event with the men and the women together um, like a Labour Cup type scenario where you're seeing them competing on the same team. I think that will be, you've got these, you know, amazing world famous athletes for men and women, which um, there's not many sports that have it. So I think it's kind of, you know, they've got to use that to advantage and it'll really engage the fans and, and the players. I think there's, there's a space for that. No, definitely. And I'm just before we kind of wrap up, um, I'm going to ask a really annoying question that you might have in like job interviews, like where do you see yourself in like five, 10 years time? But, you know, as a, do you have any like long-term plans? Do you want to kind of, do you see yourself coaching for a long time or do you perhaps see yourself, I don't know, one day setting up like your own academy or doing any like media punditry perhaps? I mean, what, what's your kind of end goal perhaps for your time in the sport? Yeah, I definitely want to continue with the coaching um, for the moment. Um, I'm really, obviously, really enjoying working with Alina and we kind of worked together for three and a half, four years now. So I feel like there's, you know, there's this journey and there's still goals we want to kind of achieve together. Oh, I help her achieve them. Um, I think whenever that finishes at some point, I'd like to carry on uh, working on the tour, whatever, or you know, if there's an opportunity to work with a British player or in the future at some stage, being involved in British tennis is definitely something I want to do. And then beyond that, who knows, really? I think there's there's lots of fantastic jobs in, in tennis, whether it, you know, you go more into like the, you know, tournament director side or in the Fed Cup role or anything like that. Um, kind of I'm open to and I think it kind of, been lucky so far in my career and we'll kind of see where it takes me yeah it's it's great I mean it's great to have you it's great to have you on because you know I don't think we know enough you know there, there aren't enough kind of British coaches I guess you know on the you know on the ATP or WTA tours and it's it's great to kind of hear from someone who you know is involved in in such a successful setup with you know a top player like Elena Svitolina so Andy really kind of thank you for for coming on um yeah it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure no, no, thank you so much. Um, uh, thanks for having me on. And, you know, it mixes up my day, which at the moment is... Looking uh, <laughs> <laughs> quite thanks. exciting. <laughs> um, and Andy, if anyone wants to uh, follow you on social media, I mean, are you on social media? Can, can can they find you? Can they follow what you're up to when you get back onto the tour? Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not a big user. To be honest. I like to kind of keep it a bit private, but I'm at Andy Bettles is my Instagram. And I don't really use Twitter. I'm more of a observer of what else is going on um, <laughs> yeah I don't think yeah, it's not I don't think I'm the best follow <laughs> <laughs> well make sure to put that in the the that link in the description in the description it's the gems life that's the one you want to gems life oh, yeah. okay we'll gems put gems life, life. <laughs> 
put Gem's life in the description. Um, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, listeners, uh, if you've got any any thoughts, let us know. You can contact the show um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Passing Shot Pod. If you want to contact us by email, you can do so, PassingShotPod at gmail.com. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you are listening to us, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you have enjoyed listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and a comment. But for now, that's it from this episode of Passing Shot Meets. I'm sure we'll be back again at some point in the future. So uh, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>